Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and here with me as usual is Coach Chad Timmerman. Hey, everybody. And CEO of Trainer Road, Nate Pearson. Hello. And we're going to give you more answers to more of your coaching questions today. You can submit those questions to us at support at trainerroad.com. We'll put them into a queue and we get to as many as we can every week. Uh, you can find this podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, or wherever else you aggregate your podcasts and listen to them. And you can also leave us reviews in those places as well. We like those five-star reviews. So, uh, And thanks, by the way. Those reviews are going up in number. We like that. So keep it up. We've got uh, a bunch of questions to get through, so we're going to kick it off this, uh, this time with Mike's question. He says, guys, great podcast, been using Trainer Road for about seven months and got through my Ironman distance race with direct help from Nate and Chad. So good stuff. Good to hear. Good job, you two, for helping them out. Um, he says, I don't have a smart trainer. I use a Kurt Kinetic Road machine and virtual power. When I'm doing any intervals, it's hard for me to maintain perfect on-target power. There is some fluctuation. So his first question, is it safe to assume that's normal? Yeah, that's totally normal. Uh, people aren't machines. So when we, it's, it's kind of cool. We just did a test. Uh, Chad did it about a few, a few days ago and we had a Kirk kinetic road machine hooked up with an inride one and inride two, a power tap P one pedals and a power two max. And we're just testing the accuracy of all those power meters along with virtual power. And it's crazy. You, if you see the raw data, the P one pedals, it's very sporadic. So it still averages the same, but it goes up and down a lot. And that makes sense because you're measuring the power right at your feet. Power to max is a little more smooth. The power tap is even more smooth. And that's, you know, by the rear wheel. And that's about the same as uh, you would get with actually, it's a little bit uh, less smooth than virtual power in the inride. But in general, the farther away you measure from the uh, from where your power is outputting, the more uh, sporadic it is, even though the average kind of gets to be the same. So Mike, with you, with the Kirk kinetic road machine, your power is probably even more smooth than a lot of other people. And you're, you're not going to be perfect all the time. If you, one thing that helps is if, you know, you're kind of neurotic is just to increase the power smoothing settings. So maybe go up to five seconds or six seconds, and that will help the display be better. I just wrote out an issue because I read your question ahead of time. And in our new windows app, we need to make it so that the graph we're going to make it so the graph reflects your power smoothing so that your, your graph will also be pretty. And it's a little bit easier than to um, post ride, see how smooth you're doing. So, so don't worry about that. I, actually, I think that might be your next question. You want to take that up, Jonathan? Yeah, yeah. He says how, um, which I'll, I'll jump right into that one, then jump backwards a bit. He says, my post ride graphs make it look like there are significant deviations, but when I'm in the ride, it's only two to four watts above or below the target. And then he puts in parentheses, I know two to four can be big. Um, and he also mentions that he does have power smoothing set to three seconds. Um, yeah. yeah, so right now there's not a, a link between your display smoothing and your power smoothing. Like I just said, we need to hook that up. And I, I wouldn't worry about it at all. If you're nailing them, and especially if your average for the entire interval is close, then uh, you're doing it right, and it's just going to go up and down. Do you have anything to add there, Chad? Uh, just that... He says, "I know two to four watts can be big. Not, not really. We're we're splitting hairs at that point. If you're if you're within really <clears throat> five or ten watts, I mean, even in the workout text, I try to recommend that riders at first try to limit it to a ten watt variance, you know, above or below. And then over time, as they get better at applying smoother, uh, more evenly distributed power, then they try to trim that to five watts, ten or five watts 
above or below, um, you're never going to be, I mean, within two to four watts, if you can do that consistently, you're writing exceptionally smoothly. So um, don't, don't take it too seriously. Just just like Nate said, look at the average over the interval and, and disregard those those occasional variances. Yeah. And that's post-ride. You don't know, see if you really hit it. The So one thing too to think about is the accuracy of power meter. So let's say you take SRM, which is probably the people think of it as the gold standard in power meters. Their accuracy is in all power meters, don't go any higher than 1.5%. So let's say you're at 300 watts, that's a swing of nine watts for that power meter, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about that, it could be, you could be hitting four and a half higher or four and a half lower. And I know that can be disconcerting and kind of like, oh, that seems so huge, but that's as close as we can get it. Um, the good news is, is that if people just follow their power meters, there's plenty of, of, of studies and anecdotal research. And we've put through tens of thousands of people through our plans who have done this and have gotten actual fitness gains. They've reduced time on climbs. They do better in races by following that same thing. So don't be too worried about actual individual Watts and more of, can I accomplish this workout? Do I, do I bail on it? Am I, you know, am I, am I really dying? I just give up. And just focus on the second by second, trying to hit those those intervals. Yeah, and Mike, also don't feel as if you're um, you're alone in this case. We all have variations in our workouts; it's totally normal, and we have variations upwards of what you've put down there on two to four. Um, that's that's normal. That's okay. Um, yeah, you're not alone on that part. If you if you were to say like that, I hit every interval exactly on target, like zero difference every single time. I, and I would say whatever you're, especially if you had a smart trainer, I would say whatever is reporting that data is not accurate because yeah. as a human, that's going to be highly, highly unlikely. And also it, sometimes when you look at smart trainers and you look at how it's graphed the power and then you look at yours, it makes you feel bad if you're not on a smart trainer, but keep in mind that data is very smooth that's coming out of that smart trainer. Um, so it's not, it's not as if you're able to be more smooth on the smart train or anything else like that. It's just, it smooths the data for you. It looks a little prettier. Yeah. So an example of that is the Kirk connect or sorry, the, uh, Wahoo kicker, the reporting data of that is extremely smooth. And a lot of people, when they, they switch between a power meter and the road and the, sorry, not the road machine, the Wahoo kicker, it'll be crazy about how close it gets lined up. It's if you put a power meter and you're at a kicker at the same time, It'll be much more sporadic with the if you're taking from the actual power meter. It's just again the way where the power is measured. The um, Wahoo Kicker has a huge flywheel on it, and that kind of smooths your your data. And it's measured, you know, very far away from uh, you know you have to go through the drive trains or your pedals, and then through the uh, the flywheel. And not that you're getting any worse of a workout, but you're not getting like a, you're not hitting your targets more accurately than you would have if you just did it with a uh, power meter. Hope, hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a difference between what you're actually doing and what's being reported in that case. Yeah. So, and then uh, you have a third question, Mike. You say, is there a line to see cadence like there is power and heart rate? And just to reiterate once again, he's talking about within our app. Yeah, so while you're working out, we don't show cadence. And we've tried it a few times where we we do show it and we didn't see a real benefit. We found it distracting. There's that, uh, you know, your IQ gets lower and we have power and heart rate on the same uh, y-axis. And if we had a cadence on there, the changes, it wasn't enough to, to see like um, analytical stuff while you're writing. We do show it afterwards. So after you're done writing, it's shown on our website and in our iOS and PC app and soon to be Mac app. We and already have a Mac is... app, but it's not showing that. 
cadence is such an immediate thing too that I think that <clears throat> having the number because you do see the number. It's not you know it's you do yeah. see your cadence live in real time. I, I find that to be much more valuable than graphing my cadence live across a whole workout. I I can't think of a situation where I'd want to look back and I'd want to to for some reason in the middle of a workout see what my cadence was earlier on. Chances are, if it's a set of intervals, I'm probably going to remember if it's a low cadence effort or anything else, I'm probably going to remember or know where I should be with that. And that's just not based off of experience. It's usually on screen text with any type of cadence drill. So if you're not doing cadence drills, um, graphing your cadence, if you do have a use case, let us know. Um, but I'm not sure that I see a, a really yeah, for valuable live. one. Post, post it is it yep. is good because you can look at your power versus your cadence and you can say, okay, I dropped my cadence here and my, my yep. power went with it and I wasn't on, you know hitting my target, but I just don't Agreed. see it during the ride. And his last question, he says, since the minimize view, and when he's talking about minimize view, that's the one that pins it to the bottom. I believe he's talking about that. Um, it pins it to the bottom of the screen so then you can watch Netflix or races or whatever else you want to in the background. He says, since the minimize view doesn't show the summary stats after each interval, is there a way to interpret the data on the workout summary pages in the career section of the app? Uh, in other words, he wants to look at each interval and the data that happens there. Yeah, so Mike's talking about our new Windows app, and uh, that feature hasn't been ported over since the Air app. Actually, we just talked about it with developers yesterday, so it's on our next, what we call a sprint of uh, developer work. So it will be coming soon that you'll see your live. Um, after you finish interval, you'll see a little slide out of your your intervals. But also, if you go to the career section, you, uh, you can. There's a little interval chart below that where you can see all your past workouts and on the web, or the intervals for your past workouts, and it's also on the website. So... Mike, that's coming soon to the uh, Windows desktop app. Yeah, the career analysis of your workouts and intervals is much improved in the new in the new PC app. So much improved. I'm a big fan of it. So, uh, Christian, I trained strictly with heart rate the previous year. This year, I have been using Trainer Road, and I am following a Trainer Road base plan. During the first portion of this base plan, I used heart rate instead of power. But when I moved on to the second portion of the base plan, I switched to using virtual power after I completed my FTP test. I'm finding that my heart rate is elevated. Oh, I'm so glad he's asking this question, by the way, because this is a really big misconception. I'm finding that my heart rate is elevated beyond zone two on most of the workouts. For example, in my most recent workout, Kennedy Peak, my heart rate was in the threshold zone for almost half the workout. And this is a workout that is lower intensity. So that's why he's expressing his concern here. I'm able to complete the workouts just fine. My concern is one of training at a higher level than what the base period is designed for. Should I just, and first of all, Cindy, one of our brand ambassadors, this question's for you. I know you just asked a question really similar to this. So should I just ignore my heart rate and follow the plan exactly? Am I training too hard? Thanks. Yeah, so Christian, now you've got um, what's unequivocally a better and more uh, objective measure of what you're doing. So while heart rate's still interesting and can still be coupled with power data in your, in your RPE, um, it, it should no longer be the driving metric. Now you've got power to train with, so yeah, I do think you should cut over. Um, during base training, especially traditional base training, it's interesting to see you know what happens over the course of the workouts. As your work rate stays the same and your heart rate starts to come down, it's an indication of improved aerobic fitness. Um, you, and, and it's nice to see that, but to train by it, it's still as problematic as it ever was. Perfect. I, that's a good straightforward answer there. Um, yeah, so I guess his question, Chad, just to directly address this one, should I just ignore my heart rate and follow the plan exactly? Yeah, I mean, use power now. You, should, you still still observe heart rate and still see what's going on, but don't let it dictate your workout. 
Exactly. And keep in mind that if your heart rate tips into another zone, um, there are a lot of variables that could have pushed your heart rate there um, from one day to the next or over a period of time. So James, hi guys. I've been using trainer road for a while now and absolutely love it. It's fantastic for targeted and specific training. We, f we think so too. I'm currently following the triathlon full distance, high volume base plan and completing a few of the sessions on a watt bike instead of my kicker at home. He said, that's why some of my workouts are missing, but I'm still doing them all. So <laughs> with an exclamation point. So he's, he's stoked on his diligence. Good stuff. My question is regarding the different terms that are used to describe training systems and workouts. I've been listening to the podcast for a while now and absolutely love it, but sometimes it can, it can be confusing regarding some of the terms. I'm glad he's asking this question. Please, could you do a quick rundown of the terms and terms and associated workouts that you would see um, to boost certain training abilities? So, for example, VO2 max. I understand this is the measurement of the amount of oxygen that your body can use over a period of time, but what is the benefit to raising this? He says. Um, so, and Chad, do you want me to read into the next question? Yeah, well, go ahead and hit the question that Perfect. number one there. How does an increase in VO2 increase your ability to hold an endurance power zone for a longer period of time. Okay. So James, um, when we train VO2 max, we're not necessarily trying to improve, uh, the power of VO2 max. I mean, that is, that does kind of figure into it, but what we're really looking for is a benefit to your aerobic capabilities and, and training VO2 max forces a lot of these aerobic adaptations. I mean, in, increases in plasma volume, mitochondrial proliferation, a lot of fancy words, but a lot of stuff that allows you to do more work and, and, and leave your sugar stores alone, save them for the efforts where you actually need them. Um, a, a better developed aerobic engine allows you to recover quicker, which from a triathlete's perspective, isn't a big concern. You know, it's more of a, a road thing where there's hard accelerations and, and, and whatnot, and you need to recover quickly and be able to do it again. But even in steady state activities like triathlons, you still have passing, you still have hills, there's still efforts where you push yourself a little out of your comfort zone for a while, and then you want to settle back in right away. And that recovery is enhanced when your aerobic engine is is beefier. And VO2 max efforts help us do it, and they help us do it in a lot less time than the long, slow efforts <clears throat> that, that are uh, part and parcel with traditional base training. So um, it's really about aerobic adaptation, not exactly elevating VO2 max power, although you know that, that, that happens and it's that elevation that lends to these, these aerobic adaptations. Um, and then there's also a matter of uh, lifting your VO2 max power, you know, or your actual VO2 max and then the percentage of your power or of your threshold at that, at, at the output, when you're uptaking as much oxygen as you can process. And, and again, this just leads back to greater aerobic endurance. And so for example, um, say you do like two minute efforts at 380 Watts, and then over time you're able to do three minute efforts and then maybe four minute efforts. But if you revisit your two minute power, that's probably gone up. So, so now it's, you know, 390 or 400 and your FTP as a percentage of that uh, is typically, it's right around 80%. It's like 78 to 85. Um, High-end athletes can push as, as high as 90 in some cases. But that comes up, it creates more room for you to lift your FTP. So sometimes progress in FTP stalls. We use VO2 max efforts to kind of raise the ceiling a bit so we can push that FTP roof up toward that VO2 max ceiling. So put simply, it's just a really potent method for, um, aerobic adaptation. Okay. So I'm going to try to give the layman's version of this. Okay. <laughs> and Chad, correct me if I give, I'm sorry to everyone, if this is a bad analogy, but I've heard this before. 
So let's say your aerobic system is a cup. Let's say a, a soda cup that you get at a fast food place, if you guys know what that is. And say you have a 12-ounce cup, and that's your, that represents your entire aerobic system. And your VO2 max dictates the, the size of that cup. Um, and then your threshold is how full of liquid that is. So maybe you're at uh, 70% full of liquid. And then as you raise your threshold, you can raise, you can get more and more liquid in that cup until you get close to the brim of it. Well, soon you, you're, you're hitting against your VO2 max and you can't fill it anymore. So you, you train your VO2 max, your aerobic system increases, you get a bigger cup. And someone like Chris Froome has this 64 ounce super gulp. <laughs> and he's also got a threshold that's sitting at like 62 ounces. And he can just train at a credibly high rate where someone who's new might be in a 10 ounce cup and have a only have it half full. Yeah, yeah, that's a good analogy. I mean, you're never really gonna push your FTP all the way up to your VO2 max. That's that's impossible, but you can get closer and closer to it. And then it's time to make the cup bigger so that you know the level effectively drops so that you can push it back up closer to your your new power of VO2 max. Good job, Nate. I like yeah. it. So we're, do, we're doing endurance training, some of the base training sweet spot. That would also increase the size of the cup, right? While it increases both the size of the cup and the amount of liquid in it. Yeah, it has some effect on it. It's just subtler and, you know, requires longer intervals, more more depleting intervals. But yeah, well, arguably more depleting depends on how, how long you make them. But yes. Good comparison, Nate. But none of us know what fast food cups are because we're very disciplined. <laughs> we would never eat at such a place, right? So. <laughs> Coffee cups. Yes, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beers. Um, you got a 12-ounce beer and then a 20-ounce <laughs> I'm totally joking, by the way. We're not that elitist. Come on. Um, okay, so the next question that he has. The difference between sweet spot and tempo training. Um, which by the way, tempo is very misconstrued. I think a lot of people don't really understand what tempo is. Yeah. I'll um, talk about that. So I'm sure you'll define that, but he wants to know what it is. And he asked, does sweet spot work, increase your capacity to hit a better FTP next time around, or just increase your ability to hold an aerobic zone for a longer period of time? Okay. So another good question. Um, sweet spot is just the high end of tempo. So, so they kind of bleed all the, all the power levels bleed one into the other. And, and tempo is, you know, 70 ish, 80 ish percent of threshold. And then sweet spots more like high eighties, low nineties. Um, hold on really quick. Let's, let's just that. So just what Chad said right there, tempo is 70 to 80%. It's tempo does not mean just pedaling around aimlessly, mm -mm. right? No, it's a, it's a particular power level and we use it as such. Exactly. Um, so in, in the beauty of it is it's just not as stressful as threshold work. And, and a lot of the adaptations, pretty much all the adaptations that come with riding at threshold come with riding at sweet spot and even as low as, as tempo, just to a lesser degree. But the beauty of it is you can do more of it. You can recover faster and, and thereby stimulate, you know, greater adaptation. So it's just basically more training time, less recovery time. Um, and, and sweet spots largely about improving your muscle endurance or your strength endurance. And, and I just kind of wanted to clarify uh, muscle endurance, strength endurance, kind of interchangeable, uh, but aerobic endurance is the other end of things. And I know all these terms, you know, what, what's the difference between aerobic endurance and muscle endurance, aerobic endurance is really just think of it as your low end endurance. It's your ability to metabolize fat and spare sugar. Whereas muscle endurance or strength endurance is the higher end stuff. So it's being able to put a lot of force into the pedals and to keep it going for a long period of time, really tax your muscles. So the higher this muscle endurance goes, the higher your aerobic speeds goes there, there go there. There's a correlation there. And an example of this one I laid out is if you know, you're doing four by 15 minute repeats at 90% of threshold, but in the case of a full distance triathlete on race day, you have to do maybe 70, 
somewhere in that range of your FTP. And you know, you're used to working at 90% and then you make this slight reduction, 10, 15%. And, and what it does to your time to exhaustion is, is this massive extension. You can go so much longer just by trimming off a little intensity. So get comfortable with the slightly un more uncomfortable stuff and then trim off just a little bit of that intensity and, and you can go for literally hours and hours. As next question, what exactly does a workout that has nine by 20 seconds at 200 FTP or 200% of FTP target? So those are, those are intense short sprints. Yeah. So these are really short, hard anaerobic efforts and, and basically it's strength work. Um, and, and anytime we address strength, anytime we have you pushing these massive Watts for just short periods of time, what we're looking for is improved work capacity. So we're just trying to make your muscles capable of doing more work. And this sets the stage for lifting everything else later on. So it's just like uh, strength, strength gains in the gym, except these are very specific strength gains. So we basically raise your capacity so that later on, when we start to focus on endurance, we've got uh, more material to work with, so to speak. So what kind of racers would uh, experience 20 second intervals at 200% FTP, Chad? Um, nothing that applies to triathlon and, and see these aren't, these are, these are base efforts to, so we're, so we're looking for capacity here. This is nothing that's going to directly correlate to, to something they experience out on the race course. Um, we're riders to use this. This would be more like crit riders, uh, maybe sprinting out of corners at nauseam, cycle cross races, mountain, mountain bike, bike races, surging up short climbs and stuff like that. So in that case, short it's track. specifically usable, but that's not what we're about in base In base. We're, we're more general. So we're just trying to create bigger, more capable muscles so that over time, when we start to grow the endurance and, and focus things in more specific nature to what they're going to see on the race, on, on race day, um, we've already got the, you know, the foundation in place. So the, so, uh, there are some intervals like that during longer endurance stuff in base, mm -hmm. but also when we get into specialty, that's in the maybe a little bit of short rolling road race or uh, yeah, short hill climbs, crit, cyclocross, mountain bike, uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah, would sprint triathlon have anything like that, Chad? No, no, well, not at all. I mean, sprint triathlons, it's a short steady state nature, but it's still steady state. So a question that I have is if you are, let's say an Ironman, you know, long distance triathlete, is it bad for you to do a workout like that? Is it going to throw things off? No, not at all. Cause so when you talk strength endurance, which is really what you're looking for when you're a triathlete, you know, you want to be able to push the pedals reasonably hard for a long time, generate a, a high steady state of speed. Strength is one part of that equation. Endurance obviously being the other, and it takes improvements in both of them to make faster riders. So like if you only improve your force, that's, that's a, virtually no use to, to a triathlete or any steady state athlete. If you only improve your endurance, doesn't really have an effect on your speed. Your, your highest maintainable speed never really comes up. So you kind of have to combine the two and these short 20 second efforts target the, the strength end of that, uh, combination. Chad, I've always felt that like, um, the best cyclists, they kind of, you know, there's, let's say there's seven power zones. They train all the zones, but then based on their specialty, they hit one zone more. And if you ever try to just do just one zone, like I'm only going to do threshold for an entire year, or mm -hmm. I'm only going to do endurance for an entire year. You end up not getting, being as good of a rider as if someone who goes from, you know, sweet spot, threshold, yeah. VO2 max, anaerobic, and it's, and it's sprinkled throughout, yeah. but you just focus on what you're you're kind of like how we say, once you get to specialty, you're focusing more on the type of stuff you're going to do on race day as you get closer. To yeah. It. As you get closer to it. But if, if you do that the whole time, you become a really unidimensional rider and you really only get good at that one thing. And, and that one thing might have positive effects on other things. You know, training threshold all the time might benefit your aerobic power, but it, it just creates a, a, a rider who's really limited in capabilities. Yeah. But so 
let's say we take two riders and one rider and they both amount of training time and one rider only tries to do or training stress i'll say one rider only does threshold and one rider does a more complete periodized plan and it goes towards the threshold stuff at the end of the year like towards specialty and say they're a 40k guy who's going to end up being faster the person with the more well-rounded plan or someone who just does threshold the entire time uh, that's a tough one because I've actually seen riders who just do threshold work and sweet spot work, you know, hold, hold it in a really narrow range and that's all they do. And they're really good at, at that one thing. They can, you know, th their threshold continues, their FTP continues to rise and, and they do well in time trials. They do well in road races and solo efforts and that sort of thing. And then the guys who are more well-rounded, um, see, typically see the same types of improvement. They're perhaps a little more versatile, but in terms of race performance, uh, honestly, I've seen pretty, pretty, uh, good performances on both sides of that. Cool. What if they did, uh, one guy was doing threshold and VO two max and one guy was just doing threshold. In that case, I'd have to go with the, the VO two max guy. They, he's just, he's creating greater stimulus. And, and that's my kind I of guess, my point is, is that, that doing the three, the, the VO two max and a little, some anaerobic stuff once in a while thrown into there will raise your ceiling. And, yeah, and on top of that, I, I question the rider doing the same thing year round, how, how motivated they can stay. They're, you're going to stagnate at some point. They, there has to be some psychological interest. You know, you have to get your motivation from somewhere and doing the same workouts, the same type of stuff year round. I just have to believe that at some point that would become less and less interesting. You know, the more time that I spend training as in like the, as time progresses, I realize that I don't have um, a natural specific strength as, as, as much as some people that may consider themselves a specialist in one degree or another. And to just provide, I guess, an application for a lot of what you guys are saying, I always love going to a race, knowing the fact that I've got a Swiss army knife with maybe one really sharpened blade in there, but I got mm -hmm. a bunch of tools that I can use. Um, and that's, you know, kind of to let what you guys are saying there, it's, it's always nice to, to specialize and focus your training and have that tool honed there. But then if you're the guy that's just focused on one thing and one thing only, races are not going to go well for you because eh, races are not the same every time. So, um, his next question, last one, he says, lastly, I know it's been mentioned a few times, but you've said previously that you don't set out many tempo rides, uh, because they don't carry much muscle adaptation. However, in the full distance base plan, there are weekly rides at 80 to 85%, which I believe is tempo. Um, which is, or what's the benefit in this for a long course athlete from more, uh, sweet spot work or VO two max intervals? Yeah. With the, those tempo workouts, um, the body can only handle so much stress, right? And we're already kind of heaping it on with the, the shorter, more intense intervals. So this is more about, um, still accumulating stress, still elevating your TSS over time and, and, and still stirring those same, you know, uh, aerobic adaptations without breaking you down. So um, basically we're just trying to keep that, keep things rolling in the same direction without, you know, getting you injured or sick and, and tempo in particular is, is a little more about quality over quantity when you compare it to longer two, three, four hour rides. So basically we're just trying to eke a little extra productivity out of shorter workouts. And so Chad too, is that's going to be around or maybe slightly higher than the, uh, Mm, that's another thing. Then the power that you're going to ride for your Ironman. So these are right. the specific type of intervals. And so on race day, you're probably not going to do an Ironman at 85% unless you're extremely, extremely fast. Really um, good. Yeah, really, maybe not even the best. So even that's then, why, yeah, that's why you can do a little bit of a shorter ride at 85% and then nail it at 75% on your Ironman. Like exactly. we talked about just earlier. Yep. That's the idea. So really the, the principle of specificity there is 
because so this is very specific you're an iron man you're going to be racing at that or slightly lower than that so we're going to raise the intensity just a little bit and give you a little less time but also not destroy you like man a five hour ride on the trainer or even outside a five six hour ride that kills me man like that the only for, way i that, can do those long rides outside is i've got to be going someplace something yeah, somewhere cool um, something interesting about the the course whatever i'm you know whatever route well, a track that you might have a 15, 20 mile run the next day. Right. And then like a big <laughs> yeah. swim. So you, it's, it's, that's the, that's the hardest part for those who don't know about Ironman. It's balancing your, your work, family and training together. If you just, I'm sure everyone listening to this right now, if you're an Ironman guy and you had no family and no work and you just had to train, I mean, you qualify for Kona. It's, uh, you would just train and then put your feet up, eat a bunch of carbs watch making a murder on Netflix and game of Thrones <laughs> and do it the next day over and over and over again. But it's the balance. And that's why I'm hoping how Chad's created that the kind of, uh, increasing or decreasing the amount of time you spend training, increasing the intensity, you'll still get all the adaptions that you need. Uh, but also you'll have a little more time to recover and it's not going to be as stressful on your body as these giant rides. John, hi, I've been listening to the podcast and find them interesting and a great break from listening to the radio to to and from work. It certainly makes the journey more interesting. I never thought we'd be replacing the radio. It's pretty cool. <laughs> um, in fact, the podcasts are what led me to buy a Wahoo Kicker and the Trainer Road app. I started the plan or I started a training plan on New Year's Eve 2015 and I'm in my second week of your low volume um, sweet spot base plan. And I've already seen some slight increases in my normalized power. And this is great. So I assume that he's probably comparing that out when he's on the road. Maybe I'm not sure. But um, what I would like to know is uh, during base training, should I be trying to lose weight? I'm currently, um, and I think he's at he's at 192 pounds at five foot eight as a former weightlifter, and I'm in the process of slimming down for cycling. I've lost over two stones, so that's 14 or 14 pounds of stone. Is that right, Chad? Or yeah, seven pounds of stone. Yeah. Yeah. So. And since starting cycling around 18 months ago, uh, which feels like it is, uh, it has come completely off my upper body. I'm quite, I have quite a powerful sprint and on a Watt bike, I can put out peak power around 1800 Watts. Um, is it best to slim down during base, then try to bulk a little when doing builder specialty programs, or should I just try to lean out as much as possible year around? Yeah. So John, you're, you're clearly coming from a weight training background. So I'm going to turn this over to Nate in a second, but, uh, it's, we don't really do that. There, there's not a slimming and then a bulking really <laughs> with cyclists. It's all about slimming without losing power. So, um, I guess you could maybe make your bulking akin to elevating power, but even then it's still kind of a, a weak protocol, but everything is the, slimming besides our skin suits. That's yeah, <laughs> seriously, really, really yeah. when it comes to cycling, it's all about elevating power and, and diminishing body weight. So the packing on extra muscle doesn't necessarily make you a faster rider. A lot of the times it doesn't, it's just more weight to cart around. The increase in power you get from that extra muscle is negligible, negligible, especially in relation to how much speed, uh, additional speed it grants you. So really we're about making the most of the least. And that, that goes for, you know, making the most benefit with the least training time, making the highest power with the least body weight, things of that nature. Yeah. Uh, John to the sweet spot base one. And I think we need to change our messaging on this. The low volume. No, sorry. You didn't do, you're just doing, are you doing traditional low volume base one or sweet spot? If you're doing traditional base, low volume one, unless you're a very brand new beginner or you're coming back from an injury, 
I suggest switching over to sweet spot based low volume one. Is Chad, do you agree with me? Yeah, absolutely. The the traditional base plans, especially the low volume, are, are kind of rehab plans or, or for people who are just really trying to gently ease back into things because there's just not enough stress on either side of it. The intensity is not high, the duration's not high. Therefore, you know, the training benefit isn't high. So and just to reiterate very, very limited use there. That's the low volume low version volume. that we're talking yep. about. Oh, I hope there. What's my microphone? We have a jackhammer yeah. outside installing fiber. Did you guys hear that? I'll pick up my <laughs> microphone. Yeah, they yeah. may be. If you guys do hear the rumbling, we apologize. It's just us yeah. getting very fast internet. So, <laughs> so the other thing about uh, you, John. So five eight one ninety two. You're a buff dude, and one thing again, ag- agreed. Slim down the whole time. You're going to be cutting, as bodybuilders say. Uh, later in your question, you talk about doing uh, TTs. The other thing you would probably be fantastic at is mm. sprinting. Um, at five eight, you're going to be able to get low and arrow. And if you can, if you right now without cycling, you can do eighteen hundred watts. Oh my goodness, man! That's a lot. Y- you can be a monster and win a whole <laughs> bunch of races. So it's exciting. Uh, I would go through. I don't know, Chad, if, if he wants to do, he said he wants later on his question, he says he wants to do some cat four races in the UK, do some TTs, maybe a sweet spot base general yeah, power build or sustained, got, and then maybe a crit plan. Maybe even short power yeah. considering he wants to do some outdoor track sessions as well, but, oh yeah. um, yeah. So short power, honestly, any of the bills would fit him, uh, all three of them would actually work. But then he, he goes on to ask, uh, Jonathan, you want to read the yeah, yeah. next question? Yeah, so he says, when I'm doing three intense activities per week, how should I be performing the trainer road program? So he's talking about doing um, some races. So it sounds like he has some weekday world champs type of stuff. Would starting base in October lend itself better to be uh, to backing off trainer road over the cycling season? And then should I aim to be in the build at the start of each year and specialty come March and April and then maintain it from there? Yes. I mean, it, it's all relative to, to your most important events when you want your highest fitness. So you want to time your specialty such that it aligns with that. But, um, when, when you talk about doing three intense activities per week, um, and then in relation to the trainer rope program, basically that's, that's all you're going to be able to tolerate optimistically. So if you're doing it, uh, as a weekly TT, if you're doing a track session, then, uh, your third workout, if you can squeeze it in, could be a trainer road workout, um, more than three, uh, days of intensity a week. Uh, I mean, that's already kind of pushing things. I mean, you can absolutely do it. That's the way most of the low volume training plans are structured, but, uh, any more than that. And you're, you're, you're kind of, uh, risking uh, injury, burnout, uh, detrain or, uh, stagnation, et cetera. Chad, could he, so one maybe approach that he could take then is maybe early morning, um, some of our easier rides that fill in those intensities. I'm thinking like black, the zone two stuff, mm-hmm. cup of coffee, do it in a fasted state, do that hour intensity as he watches some TV or an hour of easy intensity. And that would kind of help him lose a lot of weight more quickly. Yeah. That's my favorite approach. Actually. I, I really like two a days where, um, the early session or the late session, depending on you know, how my day goes, uh, is just that ideally I do it, uh, fasted. So straight out of bed, black coffee, and, and just, just noodle along. Um, you can do it later in the day as sort of a recovery ride, and it has a lot of the same effects for different reasons. It doesn't necessarily have to be fasted either. Uh, you're, basically, your, your muscles are still 
kind of kind of damaged and, and recovering glycogen depleted etc so so a lot of the same same effect but those low intensity rides especially if you can nudge up the consistency of them do two three four even five of those things a week if you can squeeze them in have a really positive effect or really uh, knock your excess body weight down yeah so at 192 and 58 <clears throat> if his goal is to lose weight the intensity and then add on those early morning fasted rides would be exactly mm-hmm. yeah that's worked yeah. great for me too um, and you also asked John, you asked if uh, backing off on trainer road, um, through your cycling season, I've personally found, and of course this is coming from me and, and I mean, I'm even the PR guy, right? So, but this is coming from me. I use, I use intensity year round and I use trainer road to structure and to perform my intensity. Um, just because I've found that it's the easiest way to make sure that I'm, I'm checking all the boxes and then I can get out and race or ride and do whatever else I want outside. It's one hour Wait. stuff, you know? This is a great, <clears throat> excuse me, a great chance to talk about Justin Rossi. Because mm-hmm. we have, um, maybe, uh, Jonathan, will this podcast launch today or will it be launched in the next couple of days? Yep, we're going to get it out today. Okay, so Monday, if you guys hear it, this is a Friday when we're recording. Monday, uh, January 22nd. 25th. Yeah, 25th. We're going to be launching a documentary that we made that follows... Um, this amateur racer named Justin Rossi who competes at a national level for time trial and for 40k TT and last year the, the previous year before this documentary he lost by nine seconds in a 40k TT if you can imagine that was in 2014 yep yeah oh my goodness that's like <laughs> like that's like the pressure of your of your tires like and keep in mind that this difference. is the this is the best non-pro cyclist in the world, right? So this is elite national championships. So these are these are guys that are as fast as pros. They just don't have a pro license because, well, not all of them, but a person like Justin has a full-time job. He has everything else that he's doing. Yeah. So we followed him for a whole year leading up to his second attempt to do that, and he uses Trainer Road during the summer, like for his intensity. And this is one. This is the best you know, uh, top 10 riders in the country, easy for non-pros. Uh, yep. it, it's so d- my point is, and this is, so again, this comes from the CEO of trainer road, this type of training is very much beneficial to you if you're at the low level or at, you're at the very highest level. And, um, for the documentary, I highly recommend you watching it. It's not a commercial for trainer road. It's a, it's a, it's extremely motivating. Even my, my wife, who's not a cyclist, she sat through, it's like 20 minutes long. She sat through the whole thing. I can't get her to sit through anything. She's always getting up and doing something else. It's yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, my wife has never watched anything than remotely close to cycling for longer than maybe thirty seconds, and she just can't hold any interest. And she sat through all the whole thing and voluntarily she enjoyed it. So, I've seen it about eighteen times now, and just with all the editing and stuff. And uh, every time I watch it, I want to get on the bike and ride. It's yeah. really cool. It's gonna be good. So, so yeah, John, um, I would use Trainer Road year round um, just because here's here's one great thing and we didn't specifically touch on this and i hope we're not beating this to death but when you line up on the line there race day and you look around at everybody else you can bet that a good chunk of them were probably outside trying to do intervals maybe or maybe they're just riding outside while you were doing absolutely precise work you did you you didn't you dotted the i's you crossed the t's you did everything you could to make sure that you were prepared with precision rather than pushing yourself too hard or going too easy and i love that when i'm on the line because i look at everybody else and even if it's false it fills me with confidence because i look at everybody else and i go i am way more prepared today than you are way more yes so so rather than john go ahead go ahead 
And John, when I, when I ran my uh, bike studios, I, I would see the same thing every year. The guys who got in there and hit it hard in November and December, January, and they were just itching to get outside. And, and, and once they got a taste of the outdoors, they, they stopped doing the structured indoor training and even the structured training in general, maybe thinking that the races would suffice or that they would get their interval workouts in with group rides or they would just make themselves do it at, at some other time. And I saw the same trend every year. These guys who were really fit, who had good fitness and had the momentum, just watched it taper and, and, and fade. And, and the race performances and their enthusiasm for riding and racing just descended with it. And it's because they got away from that, that necessary structure, just that little bit, one or two days of intensity indoors each week, you know, maybe you get one of them via a race. So the other one is, is, is all you need. And then, you know, whatever on your weekends, but it, it was always discernible. The riders who stopped, stopped just straight from the structure. And I, I want to not make this so much a trainer road commercial, but really what we're advocating is let's say there was no trainer road. We're advocating is doing the structured work year round. Mm -hmm. And if you have, so say you have a power meter and you have the roads and you can precisely stay in those zones and be on the road and be safe, you know, and, and not get hit by a car while you're staring at your power meter and do the kind of the complex workouts in the same kind of the base, the build and the specialty outside hundred percent. You can do that without trainer road. Yeah. Most people don't have all of that stuff and you can't do over unders well on the road as well as you can on the trainer. So like Jonathan said, uh, I mean, as you get higher and higher, it's all about those one and 2% gains. Uh, Justin Rossi, seven seconds. Oh my <laughs> God. <laughs> that kills me. I, by the way, I lost a half Ironman. So this was a five hour race to a friend by 17 seconds. So if you can imagine over five hours losing 17 seconds, uh, that you guys all heard about it at work. Um, that anytime that Nate still kills to, me. Anytime Nate grabbed a soda or anytime Nate grabbed anything, I always reminded him 17 seconds. I, I actually <laughs> lost, lost a national or yeah, national masters time trial championship, a podium spot. I, I was, um, I ended up finishing sixth, but the guy who finished fifth and actually got on the podium beat me by, I think it was nine tenths of a second. Uh, it wasn't even a full second. Nine tenths. And so Chad, we talk about air tire pressure for a second. Like, <laughs> let's do that because this is kind of interesting for TTs. So I'm getting my information from Jordan Rapp, who is a pro triathlete, and he got his information from um, Zip and Continental working together. So we're going to talk about uh, the best tire pressure for his weight. And I think he was about 170 pounds when he was racing or as he raced, he gave, had this information. And he had uh, Zip Firecrest wheels. Continental 4000 S2, I think yeah. it's the, yeah, um, wheels and latex tubes. And Continental and Zip, they did tests on rolling resistance. And I always thought that 120 PSI was the very best, like the pretty much the higher pressure you can get, the faster you would roll. That's not so. On, on a completely smooth surface, that's true. But on a road, that's a little bit bumpy. What they said, and they there's a, if you Google around, you can see there's a really good curve that shows you that they would he would ride at 100 psi in the front tire and 95 in the back and there was a zip disc in the back and that gave the the best the, the lowest rolling resistance and it was saving like f i think two and a half watts of wheel so five watts but five watts i would have won my race justin would have run his race chad would have won his race right mm -hmm. um and there was this there was this sweet spot in there so if you went up to 120 it uh it the lower the rolling resistance was greater, and if you went lower than that tire pressure, the rolling resistance was greater. Mm -hmm. um, I, it's very interesting, and it, it's also very frustrating because most bike pumps, 
aren't super accurate and they can be off for a little bit. I've gotten, I think I have a digital one now that we I got that, that I can one use too. to like, yep. yeah, to like, uh, to SK, guess it. To, SKS so, makes that one, by the way. It's really yeah, good. Yeah, just, just as a secondary one so I can put it in there and check to see what my, the ideal tire pressure is. And Chad, you've also, we've talked about this recently. You're starting to run a little bit lower tire pressure and you feel better in the turns too, right? In the corners on road racing? Yeah, the handling's a big deal. I mean, not so much lately because the outdoor riding is uh, its just, there's sand everywhere, so I haven't been aggressively cornering. But um, we did do a ride in Auburn uh, a couple weekends ago, and it was pretty liberating. I mean, the the, the change in confidence uh, heading into those corners was, I mean, I had to force the first couple because I just wanted to believe it was so. But then once I did it, it was, uh, I, I was kind of awestruck. And to clarify, Chad's running wider wheels. And Nate, I don't know if you know by chance the width of Jordan's wheels. The, the, the zip ones are wide. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and as far as exactly the width, I'm not sure on those fire crests oh, yeah. what they were. Well, um, I don't show what the room width is, but I know his, so that's another thing is that his front wheel was, uh, his tire was 23 millimeters and his rear tire was 25 millimeters. Yeah. So 23 C and 25 C. Um, and I know Chad, you're, you're, you're running fat tires on there. I'm way up at 28. Yeah. 28s and he's running super wide zip. So tire wheels are getting wider. Um, and what people are recognizing what Nate said, when there's a higher pressure like that, and when you're on, because no surface is perfect that we race on the closest you can get is a velodrome and that's a very different deal. But, um, for any of us that are on a road or especially on mountain bikes, deflection is a big deal. And that factors into rolling resistance, um, certainly. And that's something that they haven't really measured before, um, but now they are. And if you guys look at the top cross-country pro mountain bikers, they're, they used to run extremely narrow wheels. They're getting fat, and they're running extremely low pressures. And I mean extremely low. Like, we're talking 15, 13 pounds per square inch. Um, and they're getting a huge amount of squish out of the tires. But So this is just operating at a different scale, but it illustrates the same point that Nate made. When they're going over rocks, when they're going over bumps, and they're going over everything else, there's less vertical deflection in the bike in their body and moving that energy back up that they ha- then have to fight as they're moving forward. Um, is- and that's happening on a small scale on the road bike um, within the tires there that we don't really pick up. And if you're running that, a wider tire that's got lower pressure, it's very good at absorbing deflection and maintaining forward momentum more instead of transferring that energy upward. This is a not, not to mention adherence, you know, better corner. Yes, and that's and there's there's no tire that'll make up the as far as when we're measuring marginal gains by rolling resistance, a crash is always a, a that completely <laughs> knocks that out, right? So this is a tangent, but I think it's interesting. Uh, I met Jonathan years ago, and he was doing a startup uh, for motocross. And one thing that he told me, which I didn't realize, is he wanted to measure the time motocross riders spent in the air. And he said, "You don't want to be in the air for motocross. You want to be." touching the ground for as much as you can, because when you're in the air, you're slowing down. Mm-hmm. Is, is that right, Jonathan? Yeah, absolutely. Anytime that you're not on the ground and able to make forward momentum, you're slowing down. And even though on a road bike, you probably don't think you're catching air, there's energy that could be continuing forward with inertia, but instead it's getting transferred upward. And that happens a lot. Um, and Chad's actually a great example of this. He's an extremely smooth rider. Um, and when we're in crits and everything else with bumps or anything else like that, he's a master at absorbing any type of movement that would push him upward. And he just maintains a really smooth trajectory on the road. That's kind of what the wheels do. That. So yeah, I, I do. I have a problem with that. Just I bounce in my seat and like, yeah, I don't, that's a, I've never heard that before, but now that you say it, I'm like, I exactly have that problem. And I've always pumped my tires up to like, like it says 120, I go to like 125. So yeah, and I weigh 140 um, when I'm racing, or like in race form, I'm like 144 right now. And I run wider rims, not too wide, um, 
and I'm sitting, I think right now I'm at like 89 and 92 for my pressure, mm-hmm. 89 up front, 92 and back and uh, fantastic handling. And those are with S works turbo tires. So, um, great tires to have on there and they're 26 C, but they actually measure 25. So, um, okay. Next question. Um, let's move on to, uh, John's question here. He says, uh, finding a new episode of your podcast arrive is definitely a highlight of the workday. Awesome. <laughs> I now actually am excited to fold laundry so I can sneak a listen. <laughs> I'm sure John, I assume, I'm just going to assume that you're married. And if so, I'm sure that your, your wife appreciates that. So, um, Two unrelated questions for you. Before Trainer Road, I was a masher um, and spent too much time in a big gear at too low of a cadence. I'm in the midst of a sweet spot based low volume two uh, plan that you guys have, and the two one hour and 30 minute rides I have done have been seriously tough to complete. I'm riding on an ERG trainer, it's a Tax Neo, and while I can keep up, keep up the wattage over the intervals, my cadence, forgive me, my cadence sinks from the specified ideal 85 to 95 to 70 and below. Should I be slugging it out and maintaining the wattage, or should I be lowering the percentage resistance in order to get my cadence back up? Yeah, so John, this is um, one of the, it's not even a limitation, just one of the things you have to address when you're riding a smart trainer that's in erg mode. Um, It it, it doesn't allow you to tick down an easier gear and get your spin back up. Um, You can try it, but it's it's not a great way of going about it. So I'll, I'll mention this in the workout text from time to time too. I, I recommend 10 second back pedals. And when you, when you push yourself down to that point where you're just mashing along and you're just cooking your muscles, your muscle, your, your, your Watts are probably all over the place. They're certainly not on target. Um, you're not really getting the adaptation or the, or the type of training that we're after with that workout. So just a quick back pedal allows the resistance to fall, you know, just spin your legs backwards. They're still moving. It's not enough time to really change the nature of the interval, but it is enough time for that resistance to, to taper off. So you can wind it back up and settle back in at your cadence. And it may not even take 10 seconds. It could just be five seconds. But if you watch the little readout on our, uh, on our player, watch, watch your, uh, actual power drop, you know, don't try to get back into it when it's still on the way down. Cause it hasn't, it hasn't quite released yet. And you'll just, uh, it gets really frustrating actually. So let it drop to zero, wind it back up and get back in there at the prescribed cadence. And also uh, something to keep in mind for those of you that don't have an electronic trainer, what's happening there is as his, as the force or as the speed is dropping, the force is increasing on the trainer. Um, so that's what we're talking about. And it can put you in a bad spot if you let it go too far. So, um, I was amazed his next part. He said, I was amazed to hear you guys uh, say you have resting heart heartbeats in the low forties. I've always had a high heartbeat and at 43 and that's his age. The lowest I've been at since monitoring for two months has been 61. I know the drawbacks of training to heart rate, but is resting heart rate, any indication of training potential? Not to my knowledge, John, uh, so many people with so many different heart rates. I mean, I was talking to Nate about this the other day. I, I did a workout that when we were just talking about to, to compare virtual power to all those devices and I was gutting myself for, I think I hit 166, a little disappointed that I couldn't even reach 167, but my heart rate tops out maybe 170. I'm not even sure I can get it that high anymore. Nate does workouts uh, where he's breathing through his nose at, at, at 166. Nope. Not never so, the nose, but well, yeah, <laughs> where he's breathing easy. He's, he's, he's barely working and, and he's, he's got plenty of athletic potential. You know, when he trains, he's, he's quite fast. So uh, just because his heart rate is substantially higher than mine and Jonathan's is substantially or uh, is right, right in there with me. I don't think it predisposes us to any, any higher level of performance. Yeah. yeah I'm, I, I go like really low, like my best resting, I think is like 34. And then during a race, I can go to 201. 
and I'm I'm okay, but I'm not. Range. I know it's crazy range, and I'm okay, but I'm not like you, you. I mean, you guys are both national level type of writers, and I, I, I don't know. It's just heart rate's weird. I yeah, it's uh, just individual. We, I've heard something about John Tomac, and for those of you that don't know who John Tomac is, he's a legend in the mountain bike world. But I heard something about him having a resting heart rate of like nineteen. Um, which is just insane. Um, guy needs to take care of himself when he's sleeping, but, um, and, and you know what though? I don't think that his resting heart rate was an indication of his training potential. And I don't think that that's what helped him get there. (laughs) I think that maybe you could draw some type of correlation, but I'm sure that that was the least of John Tomac's concerns when he was training and, and doing so well and really creating the sport of mountain biking really. So um, so don't, don't worry about it. It's all relative to the individual. Um, and it's not like VO two max that it's like an indicator of training potential or anything else like that. So, uh, Jackie, I began two weeks ago. It's a Tabata protocol for those of you that don't know what Tabata or Tabata or Tabata, however you want to Tabata. say it, Tabata. Um, it's four minutes of exercise with eight repetitions, 20 seconds, max effort, 10 seconds, easy. And you have a 10 minute warm up and a six minute cool down. This is actually just a, an interval training protocol that was brought about by, I believe, uh, perhaps a researcher, Chad, or a scientist. And his last name was oh. Tabata, right? Yeah, I can't remember his first name now, but I think he coached uh, the Japanese speed skating team in uh, maybe 96, 2000. I'm not sure. He says the protocol is supposed to be done four times a week for six weeks. And my question is, could I complete this training program in parallel to a base protocol from Trainer Road during the next four weeks? Or should I complete it before beginning the base program of Trainer Road? Or last possibility is to better stop this protocol and replace it by the base program suggested by Trainer Road. Yeah, so uh, Jackie, this is kind of going to depend on you. Yeah, you might be able to swing both. Uh, Tabata, by nature, it looks like an anaerobic workout because you're going all out, which is very much an anaerobic effort, recovering really briefly and then doing it again. But because you are recovering so briefly, these get more aerobic in nature as the as the set rolls on. So this is very much a VO2 max workout. Um, in which case, if you're pairing it with a traditional base plan, you might be able to do the both at once. Um, if you're pairing it with a sweet spot base plan, I don't think so. I think it's going to be too much intensity uh, at the same time. So it depends on which base track you're, you're taking. But uh, if it's traditional, give it a shot. If it's sweet spot, I would not recommend it. And Joseph, first I want to say that I love Trainer Road. It's the best money I invested in cycling. And now your podcasts have even increased the value for me. You guys are awesome. That's awesome. Cool. That That's honestly, and sorry, this is kind of pitchy, but we always think that we always think about how much. So I, I'm, I'm building up a brand new Yeti ASRC mountain bike right now. And I'm, I'm at this, I'm a nerd guys. I've quantified percent, you are a nerd. <laughs> percent, how many grams I'm getting. So like, because I'm changing everything out on the bike and, and I'm working with some companies to make this thing. Absolutely. It's going to be light and extremely nice. A dream bike. I did that too for my Venge. Yeah, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt you, but it was going to be to lose a pound. It was going to be a thousand dollars, and I was yeah. like, yeah. Uh, "No, I'll just, <laughs> I'll just lose a pound myself." Yeah, and I fi- and I don't want to share the figure. It's embarrassing. Um, but I'm spending a lot to save a little amount of weight, right? And I, we always talk about that, like how much money could you spend on you know whatever it is to save weight on your bike, uh, and then if you just and then it's like a couple Starbucks coffees and you're way faster than you would be otherwise if you just yeah. bought all that. We, that we need to do an infographic where it's uh trainer road versus your $10,000 bike up Alpe d'Huez. So if you <laughs> went from like a, you know, a, a cheap, a cheap bike to a really expensive bike versus, 
I don't know, three months of trainer road, which one would get you faster up the hill? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if, well, I don't want to, I always hate when we're just like commercial for trainer road, but versus extremely structured training, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah exactly. I, I, it's, you're going to win and it's going to be a lot cheaper. If you want to see that infographic, let us know on Twitter or something. So then we can convince our designers to do it. It'd be fun. Um, yeah, totally. <laughs> so uh, now to my question. Since VO2 max capacity is mostly genetic and its improvement in the trained athlete is only marginal, it would be more rewarding to improve power at VO2 max. Since the power produced comes from aerobic and anaerobic sources, am I right in assuming that since in a well-trained athlete, the aerobic power contribution at VO2 max is peaked, Therefore, the only way to further improve power of VO2max would be to train anaerobically. So very wordy question, Chad. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot going on, Joseph. It's a, it's a good question. It's a complex one. Um, there's a couple things. Um, first, aerobic capacity is seldom tapped out. I mean, you have to be extremely highly conditioned before you, know, you can't garner any more improvements in your aerobic capacity. So r right off the bat, there's still room for improvement there, I bet you. Um, so, and you can do it a couple ways. You can do it with weight loss. Um, you can do it, you know, with improved aerobic function, obviously. And that could be done with, you know, max aerobic stuff like VO2 max work can be done with long, slow distance. Um, but even a few percentage points are worth the effort. Uh, but the VO2 max efforts themselves, as you pointed out, uh, have a, a high anaerobic component, which means, you know, you're generating a lot of lactate. So there's already some aerobic work being done just, just through doing those VO2 max efforts. Um, but improvements in your anaerobic power, all that's really going to do is help you generate more lactate, which is good in terms of short, hard efforts, but it's still about aerobic function. It's still about, you know, how well you can clear that lactate, um, spare sugar and, and in turn, you know, oxidize fat instead. Um, you, you use fibers that don't fatigue as quickly, that sort of thing. So the idea here is, and, and, and working through base and build and specialty, we kind of address this is you first try to drive up your capacity for work. You know, you want raw capacity to, to be lifted, which is why we do maybe two minute efforts or even start shorter than that and give you plenty of rest in between them. We're just trying to build the ability to work that hard. And then over time, we try to gravitate more toward endurance, you know, the repeatability of those efforts. So you can start applying, applying them. So by the time you get to your specialty plans, uh, and, I, and and the the ones that come to mind are like uh, cyclocross and criteriums and road races and mountain bike races. The rest gets shorter and shorter and shorter, and we're less con concerned with building capacity so much as exploiting it. Now now it's a focus of endurance. So the aim here is it's really to increase. It's kind of a combination of you know your max aerobic power and your anaerobic power. So it's you know how often you can dump lactate into the system, work hard, clear that lactate, and do it again. And this is all very much dependent on your aerobic capabilities. So again, it's not really about uh, infl or inflating your anaerobic capabilities. That's that's all good and fine early on, but as you get towards your your, your events, it becomes more about the endurance end of it. Uh, Matthias, he says. Um, I think it's Matthias. Matthias, forgive me. Yes, because he does say I'm Matthias and I'm from Germany. Um, thanks, Nate. Um, and I have a workout question about short power training. Um, what do you think? Would it be useful to train the legs in the gym and with your short power intervals from Trainer Road? For example, train legs on Monday with squats and other leg exercises. And on Thursday and Saturday, train shorter power intervals with Trainer Road. And he says, I'm trying to be less or trying to be less of a climber and more of a sprinter. And Chad, you're probably a good guy to answer this because on yesterday's ride, you put in a lot of these type of efforts and hurt me. Yeah, so. and this is exactly 
where I stand on this issue. I'm I'm still and for will forever be a proponent of weight training, but only in the sense that weight training makes a stronger body. Stronger body makes a stronger athlete. Doesn't necessarily make a stronger rider. So I don't uh, often recognize a direct carryover from stuff I do in the gym to stuff I do on the bike. So I try to keep my strength work on the bike, sprint work, and in, in this case, very specific to what I have to do on the road, which means uh, any strength training I do in the gym doesn't really influence. I don't, I don't think it has an impact, and there are plenty of coaches who will disagree with me on this, but I, I, I try to keep it as specific as possible. Um, in your case, if you, if you want to do both, your format's good. You've got enough recovery between the more important workouts. You can give it a go for a while and see what the response is, but I'd be willing to bet that if you eliminated that Monday gym session and kept the other short power intervals, you'd see the same, if not better, improvement. And the last question for today comes from Scott. He says, hello, I'm somebody who enjoys casual rides on the weekend with my friends without much focus on training but which can feature some more intense cycling as it always does with friends, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in contrast during winter weekdays, I spend my cycling time indoors on the turbo trainer doing, uh, interval sessions. If I was to follow one of your low volume plans to make up my three midweek trainer sessions, what considerations or alterations would I need to make, uh, to the plan when I also intend to continue my weekend rides, which allow no structure and vary in intensity. P.S. Really enjoying the trainer road workouts and the podcast. Um, I'm not sure you'd have to tweak too much. Uh, you're talking about three midweek trainer sessions, so I'm assuming one of those is easy. Um, so a couple hard days, inter, uh, separated by a day of rest or, or a milder day. And then by the time you roll around to your weekend, um, you're, you're kind of free to do as you choose. You're getting two quality days during the week, and then I'm guessing a fair amount of quality on that weekend ride, considering... The, the nature of group riding. So uh, I think you're actually good to go. This is a great use case for low volume plans. Um, mm. I think that low volume plans, if you're the type of rider that has other plans outside of just training um, inside and you don't want to have all of your work structure for one reason or another, low volume plans are awesome for this type of a thing. And you'll see a huge boost if this is the, your type of guy. And to be honest, Um, For me, this doesn't vary a whole lot from what I do in many cases. I just do have some structure on the weekend, but I still go out and I do a long ride, you know, on the weekend. So um, it's very effective uh, at at making you faster here. Yeah, for me, I'm on uh, week six of Sweet Spot Base 1, low volume. And uh, today I have one of the uh, other, the easier, the, the last week's kind of recovery week. And I have a hour and a half easy kind of zone two ride for the weekend. And I'm going to then take that outside and do it on a fat bike and just go explore the mountainside. And that's perfectly acceptable to switch those rides around. And if for some reason I did a group ride, I wouldn't really kill my training as long as I am refreshed for my next test. Uh, is that yep. right, Chad? Yeah. Dead on. Yep. Awesome, guys. Thanks so much for the questions. We appreciate it. Once again, you can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or anywhere else where you get your podcasts. Uh, you just search for Ask a Cycling Coach or Trainer Road, and you can find them on there. Leave us a review if you feel so inclined, and keep submitting those questions to support at trainerroad.com, and we'll get to as many as we can next week. Thanks a bunch, guys. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.